0: up y'all and welcome back to Love and Grit. I'm Laia. I'm Justin. And I'm Rachel. And this week we are serving up the goods for your eyes and your tummy with some pretty dope stories. Chef Tony Hicks is no ordinary chef. She's a fellow and a vessel. Also we will speak to Stephen C.W. Taylor who will tell us the story of how one goes from software engineer to fine art photographer and now gallery owner who has provided a way for us all to have
1: access to beautiful works of art.
0: But first, around the Philly faves, Justin, what are we talking about?
1: What is your favorite thing to do in the Philly region in November?
0: I love Peddler's
2: Village, so I'm gonna say apple picking. Ryan loves to bake, and so we can make a nice apple pie. You can make caramel candy apples. We can. So you are... making an apple pie. <laughs> yeah. No, seriously, it's he likes easier. to bake. He loves to bake. We, does we have she cute like little bake? videos. Does she know? Mommy doesn't like to bake, but her baby does. So okay. she finds recipes and he knows how to crack his little egg. <laughs> Get out. He has, oh my God, he loves baking, honest, love like loves it. Loves it. That's loves great. it. So, yes. I have to show you guys some of the videos of him baking, and yeah, he
0: loves it. Show me some videos of you baking. <laughs> That's the truth. Okay. You know what? Whatever. Whatever. It's alright. Go ahead. I'm gonna do mine in the in the way that Rachel did hers. So it's fall, and you know we like to drink. <laughs> so I'm gonna hop on over here and look forward to this Philly Wine Fest at the Live Casino and Hotel. But let me just say this, y'all: it's ten dollars. Imagine $10, a wine fest, just drinking wine. Don't spit it out. They tell you to don't do it. Just walking around, tasting different local and national wines. By the time you leave, you don't even remember. Are you going to leave? Are you go- Are we going to help you leave? When they shut the work? doors, I'm going to leave when they shut the doors. Because they said it's $10 and they did not say I had to stop. <laughs> they did not. That would be November the 19th for all who are curious. All right.
1: Mine is the Thanksgiving Day parade, which is always pretty cold, but I don't know, there's something about it that like brings in the holidays for me. Yeah. As a little kid, I was a balloon handler. In the parade, what, is you know, mean, like, what does that mean? Does that like mean? you hold, you hold, <laughs> them, you hold like one of the, them up. They you make put sure it doesn't you fly away. They put you in a <laughs> in a jumpsuit, like a matching col- one color jumpsuit. Yes, and <laughs> you just hold on to this big rope, and there's people who tell oh, you what you're to the do to like the
2: float. It's all so doesn't go away. Yes. Oh. yes, you walk
1: it down oh. through the roof. Is it? happening? Oh, we need yeah. To you see need pictures. a bunch of people.
2: Wow, that's actually really cute. We need yeah, to Yeah, one year I got that. in trouble
1: in math class and I wasn't allowed to do it.
2: Wait, they they took it. The,
0: <laughs> yeah, my
1: parents <laughs> the wouldn't let me that they do they it. They made you
2: do it. They took it away. Yes.
0: Yeah, That's <laughs> yeah, <it was> hilarious. <laughs> do it. No walking in the cold today.
1: I'm on that. <laughs> right.
2: Right. Right. In a jumpsuit wear the, I don't at get 5 a.m.
1: Blue jumper. <laughs> it was yellow one year, too. Hey, God bless you. That's the sweet. That's sweet. sweet. It's want a can fun Can time. you
2: please, on the day of the parade, can you please post an old Robeck Yeah, I have, find photo. Some, I
1: have to find some I have like, to actual photos. I know mom photos. has it. I know yeah, mom
2: has
0: I'm gonna it. I'm going to look. For I'm sure. Look. That'll be dope.
1: All right, let's do this, guys.
0: Let's set this straight. Chef Tony Hicks has done the work. Many may see the shine of the James Beard Fellow and her long resume of working in some of the most prestigious kitchens in Philadelphia, (coughs) South Jazz Kitchen, Mason 208, High Street Philly, and Pyramid Club, just to name a few. (laughs) Or maybe you are blinded by her community work as she strives to dissolve food deserts by educating the masses. Whether it be her work with culinary literacy at the Free Library or being awarded a Stone Barns Agricultural Fellowship Scholarship to present fresh farm-to-table free to residents in low-income communities. Not to mention, but let's mention it, she has a booked and busy business offering private chef services, meal prep, menu, recipe development, event catering, and cooking instruction classes. Like I said, Chef Tony has done the work, and we are here to eat it all.
1: Watching your Instagram, you got private dinners here, selling booked out and, and catering. Busy. And tell us what's going on.
3: Right now, I just actually finished up my dinner at Elwood. I knew I was going to get a lot of buzz and. I wanted people to taste my food because I just didn't want to be this girl that everybody talk about. And it's like, damn, can she really cook?
1: <laughs> What'd you cook?
3: It was five-course tasting. I did like an amuse and it was based off of a pizza pretzel that I used to do. Growing up, my family, we sold water ice. I lived in 19th and Paramount down yeah, here. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I lived right across the street from Francisville Playground. Yes! Yeah. It was something that we did for seven years, which I think is pretty cool. We sold pizza pretzels. So we oh, had yeah. our amuse. It was our pizza pretzel, uh, Madeline. And then I had, first course was after school snack, So it was all the things represented by what I used to eat after school. Sour cream and onion chips, Twizzlers, sunflower seeds, orange soda. It was like a citrus dressing. We had fennel. We had potatoes. We had a Sunday dinner, which it was the tuna carpaccio because I always eat tuna fish sandwiches for dinner <laughs> on Sundays. And then we had a shrimp tostado, which was my favorite one. It was like a play on Mexican food and Chinese food because I love Chinese American food, but it was the worst food I ever ate in Mexico. But it was the closest I was going to get to home when I was in Mexico. And then I did a seared halibut with succotash my father loved succotash it was also blackened and and then I did the persimmon and ginger broth with it and then for the dessert I did a banana pudding tartlet
2: did you always know that hey I want to be a chef or I want to work in the culinary industry was this your first taste of that or did your family did you guys always cook together like what made you realize this was the path you wanted to be on
3: for us it was just a way to get out the house every summer (laughs) Even though we lived across the street from the playground, my mom was like, "Nobody going to playground without your older sister being there." I'm the youngest of two other girls, and it was for us to one have fun. But what really got me started in culinary was high school. I never wanted to be in culinary. I never wanted to be a chef. I was just good at it. And then, like once I was consistent and saw that, like. I really could do this and I can make money of it and I can make a career of it. Let me just stick with it and be consistent. The CCAP program is really what got me
0: into I it. Was to ask you about that yeah. program. So talk about the program and, and also tell us: is it available at every school
3: or select? How does Ooh. that work? So the CCAP program, CK stands for Careers Through Culinary Arts, and we are a nonprofit organization. We are in six different locations around the country. We're in Philly, New York, DC, LA, Arizona, Chicago. And it's been around for like 30 plus years. Each year it grows. But like when I was in it, what CCAP provided to me was a scholarship or internship and then different fun things you could do after school around Philly. Mm -hmm. But I actually work for the program now. Right. I actually get to see it now. And it's a little different because we're doing scholarships, apprenticeships, mentorship programs. We do after school meet the chefs. We do check ins with the students. We do classroom visits. Sometimes I'm going in a class cooking with the students.
0: For kids and parents who want their kids to experience this. I want to know, how do you even find out? How did you find out?
3: Because I was in the CTE culinary program in high school a career technical educational program. So it's just about like applying. When you're in eighth grade, you go apply mm-hmm. to any high school you want. Philly different. We got a thousand high schools. We got a million middle schools. Mm-hmm. You know, not everybody goes to the same high school. And I just was applying to schools because I'm not going to lie. I can't go in the classroom and listen to you talk all day. That ain't going to work. So I applied to like Saul Swinson, Mass Bomb. I applied to all the schools. that had a CTE programs. And then I did it. And then I got into the Bacon program. Swenson is the only school in Philadelphia, who has a a separate bacon and a separate culinary program. Other schools have it combined. I was in the bacon and pastry arts program. Um, Really good friends with the culinary teacher. And I was really good at doing culinary. And so the teacher was like, hey, you should sign up for this program. He was like, I'll give you all your volunteer hours, community service hours to graduate if you sign up for this program. And I was like, all right, I'll do it. I was just doing it to get community service hours to graduate. I wanted to be a lawyer I don't like reading. I don't like writing. I don't like history. And I don't like politics.
0: So you didn't want to be a lawyer? I wanted to be a, I like to argue. <laughs> you got to write I know. That's why I didn't want. I don't know what I was going to do. You That's know what I like to argue. <laughs>
3: Good I for a her. debate. And I'm always <laughs> right. <laughs> that program changed my life. I was able to get two scholarships from them. I got a $5,000 cash scholarship. I used their CCP to make sure this was something that I really wanted to do. And then I got a full tuition scholarship to Drexel University, which is worth about $97,000 and studied food science.
0: Now, that's why I kept harping on how you first got into it, because sometimes people aren't even aware that there are special high schools you can go to that have access to these programs. A lot of people you know about Kappa and all the entertainment.
1: Yeah, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Really? No, girl. No, no. I knew about Kappa. I know about the STEM schools.
0: I want to develop a culinary STEM
3: program, but that's in the future. Food science, food science. Talk about what exactly that means. Food science is like the physical, the chemical, and the biological study of food. Drexel, we focus a lot on product development over there. If you know Drexel has the food lab program who works with small business or like just small entrepreneurs who want to develop a product. And they also work with bigger companies like Hershey's and Campbell's. They do research and development for them as well. But I did learn food microbiology, food chemistry, functional foods, how food function in your body, nutrition, also food engineering, you know. How long it takes for food to be processed, okay, so have the perfect taste, the perfect snap, the perfect crunch. We practice a lot of sensory because a lot of sensory goes into consumers when developing a product. But for me, with my culinary STEM program, I really want to highlight the science, the technology, the mathematics, and the engineering in food because. I eat chips every day. A lot of people just look at chips and be like, oh, you could just fry them and then put spice mm-hmm. on them, throw them in a the bag. But it takes a lot to do that. You know, it takes as much to develop a TV. Ooh. And I don't think it's appreciated.
1: Ooh. You've just been through this James Beard Fellowship. What do you want to do? Do you want to open a restaurant? Do you want to open? You do like a lot of stuff. You, you, mm-hmm. You're a really good teacher, mentor. Mm-hmm. You do it sort of all. What's your ideal setup?
3: having a building in Philly, owning the bricks, of course, and then creating a community space based off of culinary and different artists or different entrepreneurs. So the base of it is to have a big commissary kitchen that way. People who are small business owners, mm-hmm. really small catering guests can come in and rent the kitchen out. I want to teach culinary classes. So you're here. not
1: like, I want to be a restaurateur. No, you're not that <laughs> type of <shit>. No,
3: <laughs> And I'm going to be honest, why I don't see myself doing it is because it takes a lot to own a kitchen everything like that. But it also takes a lot depending on other people. And I think when you start to own restaurants, you do have to depend on, on a lot of people. I was a great employee, but I worked with people who are horrible employees. Right. Just making sure somebody show up on time, making sure that your books are right and all the other kind of stuff. I'm not into the restaurant world as much as I used to be. I started working in restaurants when I was 14. So I've always worked in restaurants all my life. So that's not something that I ever wanted myself to do. I also don't like working in restaurants because I feel like I would not reach the level of success that I want to reach in working for someone else or like working in a restaurant or as a line cook. It really got to come from the muscle. Like I really got to go out there, chase what I want to do. Get out your own boss, be my own boss, make my own hours. Even though that know I means working all day and night, I think it's going right. to be
1: right. That's the thing. People in think being a, your own boss is great, but it takes a lot of work to get there.
3: Yeah. I dedicated 10 years to other people's business, right? And I'm still dedicating that time right now. So imagine when I take all of that time, that dedication, showing up on time, not calling out sick and put that into my work. And what I want to do is going to be different. And I'm going to be where I want to be in life because I'm having something to chase. And also I can't afford to fail.
1: You know what? That's a really good point. And I thought about that. People put everything they have and get investments from their best friends and family to open Mm -hmm. these restaurants. We know the success rate is not good. You know, you're up on the the levels with the Nick Elmies, and people say your name now. Using that I think is like really interesting, right? Especially in Philadelphia, because I think Philadelphia has really a unique relationship with food as a place. Mm -hmm. And it's really because of the people, it has nothing to do with the place or the food, it's the people in between.
3: Philly is like a big melting pot. I know the United States is, but Philly is different. You know, you got little Cambodia, you got Chinatown, like you got little Italy, like you got so many different places in Philly. And that's just how we all connect. Everybody bumps elbows with each other. That's how you meet some of your best friends, eating their food, learning their culture. So I think it's just letting people into our culture, our city. And I think hospitality. It's hospitality. Mm -hmm. That's what it's called. So I think just having that and building around that is what brings us so close together. Like you said, a lot of people would have never known me. Like, I think I'm the coolest person on earth, but a lot of people would have never known me if I didn't cook. And your food's
1: unbelievable. What have you eaten that you love? I mean, I've had a bunch of stuff. Talk about what you made at the Beard House. You also had a (laughs) James Beard box, which was hugely successful. That was a phenomenal meal.
3: So the James Beard box is basically a milk kit and It doesn't necessarily have to be a first course, second course, third course. Some students, they just put like different cakes in it. Some people just put like different mixed drinks in it. It's all what you want to put in there so people can get to know you, know your food, know your culture or whatever you want to do. I put three different things in there that represent me in three different ways. So the first thing I put in there was sweet potato croquettes with a Thai green curry sauce and then a ginger, honey, Greek yogurt type of sauce. I put that in there because I remember at Drexel, we had to take our cultural gastronomy class. Our first assignment was like, here's this bin of wasted food, upcycle it. So I just like kept that recipe with me and then just like mixed it with different things that I like. The second thing was a lima bean risotto with blackened fish. And that was just something me and my dad will always eat after school. I would always get fried whiting, put hot
0: sauce on it. You and your Um, daddy will always eat a, a lima bean risotto? Is that what you No, want? we eat oh, lima okay. beans and rice, but okay. but rice over that. two days is not good. So nice.
3: risotto over two days is really good. So, yeah, and that comes from being a chef and understanding that The third thing I put in there was a sticky bun, an apple sticky bun. We always eat sticky buns in my house. We eat it for breakfast. We eat it for lunch. It's always on a table. It's always something to have at your house. And I put it in there because either people can eat it as a dessert or they can eat it as a breakfast snack. That was so morning. good. And thank you, visit Philly. We we did a James Beard dinner and then we also did the Beard Box. A lot of the fellows, they just get the box so people could eat their food and see what their culture is and like represent them. But because I did the dinner, I got the chance for people to eat my food that I really wanted to cook because when it came to the box, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to put a whole fish. I'm gonna octopus. Like I was saying, like all this wild stuff I'm going to do. And I brought it back and like, Nope, 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 Yeah, nope, I mean, it's got you know? got to ship
1: it out and warm it up at sure. home. So it's got to be. Yeah. Oh,
3: okay. I was like, let me just do my comfort food stuff for that. But at the beer house, I made this red snapper ceviche with this hibiscus citrus. So I mean, people
1: went crazy for it. And
3: I did a cilantro foam with it. And then mm-hmm. I did plantain threads. It was good. I loved it. I, and I was happy. Everybody liked that. I
1: everybody. So I mean, and. You were cooking with the big names in Philadelphia. That's why I was Jeff so Mark nervous. You Damn.
2: were hoping that somebody didn't show up at your table so you could take
3: that entree.
2: Like, <laughs> is it going to be more? I
1: was
3: nervous for that dinner and to like, here you guys say that now. That makes me feel better. I mean, I knew I didn't suck, but I was happy to be around people from Philly. It was just like a different vibe. We kind of all had like the same vibe. And then I met Jose Garces that night and he actually was like, would you be interested in doing the residency at Volver? That night I met him because he was sitting at the table with uh, people from Seacat and I walked over and started talking to them. And he was like, if you didn't know, we did our first season of the Chefs in Residency and I think you would be great to do it. Like, I love your story. I love the things that you were saying. And I was like, yeah. Two weeks later, he emailed me about it. And then- That's
1: great.
0: And Rachel and I, we were just talking about this residency thing because for some reason we were like, it feels a little new that now, maybe it feels new because it's more diversity. This is what Rachel was saying, the aspect of a chef doing a residency and folks having access to that residency, right?
3: I actually want to go on a chef tour after this. I was like, I'm going to do this residency and I'm going to be like, yeah, I did this in Philly. I'm going to go on a chef tour. Yeah, you should. (laughs) I, I love music and I love the music industry and I see like culinary as the music industry all the time. So I'm like, I want to be like the rappers and go on a tour because I love rappers.
0: Well, maybe we need to do it together.
3: I really want to say like Visit Philly giving me the opportunity to do the fellowship. It just changed my life drastically within 10 weeks because that's what the fellowship was. Even the first week I posted that I was doing it, it just like changed so much and I loved it. And I really appreciate you guys. And I want to say thank you to you guys and thank you to CCAP as well. Because if it wasn't for like me being an alumni of them, I mean, people would know me, but I think I'm known on a higher level that I always wanted to be on, you know. I, and when-
1: you keep rising. Your yeah. stock is rising.
3: Thank you. And thank you for being an ambassador to our region. We are so proud
2: and so excited when we see all the things you're doing on Instagram. We're like, we know her! (laughs) We're just so happy. You're a great Philly
1: representative. You make Philly Mm -hmm. look good, you know, and you make people feel good and you make things that taste good. It really like is this full circle where people get all the sensory of great Philly from you.
3: I appreciate it. And that's just me being myself. I used to start meetings and like talk to people when I was first meeting and I was like, I'm sorry. I may say something weird, but I have this weird Philly accent that people talk about. But now I just talk and I was like, you know what? They gonna get this accent.
0: (laughs) We don't like to brag, but here at Love and Grit, we give you the story of history makers while they're actually making it. Stephen C.W. Taylor might not have known history was in the making when he traded a cushy software engineering job to pursue his new passion of fine art photography. However, it happened as he became the first black photographer in the country with his own gallery dedicated to only his works. And no, you won't find his gallery, Ubuntu, on the streets of Center City. Steven consciously decided to bring Ubuntu to the neighborhood he comes from and loves most, Germantown. How and why has he made this history? Well, that's why he's here. Start telling us about
1: your gallery.
4: Where to start? It's a fine art photography gallery. The name of the gallery is Ubuntu Fine Art. Ubuntu is a South African proverb that translates to humanity and sharing. I've been to South Africa about three times and I wanted to keep the feeling with me. So most every time I get off the plane, when I come home from international trips, whatever feeling I have washes off me as soon as I hit PHL. So I wanted a way to kind of keep it with me by bringing a luxury institution to my community and neighborhood and sharing the humanity that I've captured through my travels with my community.
0: Hmm. To listen to you, it would sound like you've been doing this your whole life. However, to read about you, we find out you've been doing something quite different your whole life. So (laughs) might you tell us what was the moment of turning from software engineer
4: into photographer? So I'm 40. In 2011, I moved back from D.C. to Philadelphia to my childhood house with the idea that it don't make no sense for me to be paying to live in Virginia when this is free. I worked from home for about a year at the same job, and then they wanted to promote me to manage people, and I quit. I renovated my house, and after that project, our friend Omar, I was complaining about something. He was like, you're talking like a boss, but you ain't doing nothing. The next day, I went out and bought three GoPros, and I started my photography journey documenting food. So my Instagram name was Frenzy. And I strapped GoPros to myself to go around the city and get people's food stories. So that was very early on in 2014. I like to say that I introduced GoPro to the urban environment. So most of my friends hadn't known what it was. So this is eight years ago, GoPros, Hero 3 Plus Black. They on Hero 11 now. Very early on, I understood that video was way too cumbersome. And I kind of just was taking pictures with my GoPros and posting them on Instagram. But to an urban environment, an urban community, I had never seen fish eye pictures like that. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. I like to say that this person founded me. So Rashad Lambert did a hashtag search on GoPro. That was 2014. And he was really the first person to tell me that my stuff was hot. Like, he's like, yo, that's decent. Let's schedule a meeting. <laughs> and me and Rashad have been rocking for legit eight years. The food portion kind of stopped once I got down with Neo and it kind of transitioned into documenting positive blackness. And that was my goal. Yes, that's Neo. I wanted to document positive blackness. Why, why,
1: Why did you make, you sort of jumped in with food because that's easy and obvious, right? And like, it's colorful. Going from photographing food to say, I want to photograph positive blackness. What inside you or part of your history made you want to do that? Because, again, this Uh, was before Black Lives Matter and people were talking about this stuff. And how did you meet
2: Neo?
4: Celine Weldon, owner of Whimsical. I've known Celine since he was nine years old. So that's like my my little brother. And when I told him I was going to do something, one, he was my first interview. And then he put me with 50 of his friends who did food. And that's really how it happened. And Neo was part of the ecosystem. So Celine would go to the Urban Art Gallery, to Neo's events and stuff like that. I went to one event with him. And I was like, this is what, I believe, to answer Justin's question, this is what I believe needs to be prominent imagery of blackness, not whatever is going to go viral or trauma related or whatever the case may be. I only want positive blackness. There are enough outlets and people on Instagram that are going to give all the riffraff, all the shootings, all of this, all of that. So my goal was, well, there needs to be an alternative and my feed will be that alternative. So whoever's tapped into my feed will get a bit of alternative stuff. And NEO really opened me up to the idea of travel. So I hadn't even been out the country until I met NEO. So the leap was simply me learning the skill and coming into it and focusing in on it. I'm an engineer by trade, so it wasn't, okay, I I got a camera and I love photography, so I'm going to go take people's pictures. No, it's, well, how does this machine work? I have a firm belief that if you know your tools, then you can get your desired result 100% of the time. I was very stubborn with my GoPro. I said that I'm going to make my GoPro do everything a DSLR can do and nobody can tell me any different. But that was a case of professional ignorance. The machine doesn't work that way. And shout out to my mentor, Ricky Codio. He really, really, really helped me understand life. a
0: beautiful network. That's what this is. It also sounds like this is lessons and beautiful network and networking with like-minded people, right?
4: I'm of service and I just kind of rock with people who rock with me and I got good energy and I don't want anything from anybody. You know what I'm saying? So people freely share information with me and Ricky Codio around light itself. You know, this machine we call a light box that we're all using. How does it work? And he really helped me grasp light in the studio. But I took that outside. You know, I don't shoot in the studio a whole bunch. So I just took that outside. And I know that I guess you could say as a Black person, I got a luxury of riches when it comes to intellect. I've done a lot of different things in my life. You know, my degree is in criminal justice. I'm a software engineer. You know, I got down with out Allen Hamilton because I met a girl in McDonald's. Uh, you know, like I've been to 18 countries simply because somebody introduced me to this idea. I live in the same house that I grew up in. I'm a firm believer that we can't continue to starve our communities of intellect and expect people to do different when all of the intellect leaves. As soon as you get enough money, we are trained, almost ostracized, if you're not perceived to be a certain point, you should be out of the hood. And if you're not there, then what happens to the intellect? What happens to the property values? What happens to all of these things? What happens to now your neighborhood public school that requires your property taxes to survive? What happens to these things when all of the intellect to a man leaves the communities when in the 60s and the 70s, largely through segregation and redlining, it wasn't like that? The doctor lived next door to the lawyer, to the trash man, to the librarian. All of the intellect stayed in the community, which is why somebody could, let's say, get a kid in line who they saw acting out of character because they lived a block away. There was a certain kind of mutual respect, understood that, okay, we may not have a whole bunch, but we got each other. And I would say starting was kind of like in the 80s, my generation, leave the hood, leave the hood, leave the hood, leave the hood, go to college, go to college, go to college, go to college. Now what happens to these environments? They're starved of intellect.
0: So can you talk about being back in Germantown? Like you said, you're back in the neighborhood you grew up in. Talk about like how you see it affecting your neighborhood.
4: I think that neighborhood helps me to keep a level head. So when I lived in Virginia and before I came back, you know, I rented the basement of a single family house. I had deer in my backyard. Like I'm chilling. And I come back to Philadelphia with this energy of I know better than you. And two weeks in, one of my good friends, he was like, Steve, it don't work that way. Not with Philly. And not with most urban environments, not even urban environments, most places of poverty. Like when we go to Africa or something like that, someplace Americans will deem a third world country or lesser than them. We go there with a bunch of charity when nobody asks for it. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So you'll wind up spending $40 on a knickknack that really costs 10 because that individual knew that you wanted to give them charity. (laughs) So they really kind of got you. So I had to kind of break that down within myself. And through breaking that down within myself, the hood really kind of taught me a lot in the form of this idea, the spirit of Ubuntu. You live and let live and you treat people as you want to be treated and you try to see everybody as yourself so that way you're not passing your biases onto other people and your judgments onto other people. One of the highlights of that is, you know, I walk to work almost every day. So my gallery is a mile from my house. And when I opened the gallery, one of my young boys was locked up. As soon as he came home, he was like, yo, dog, I was reading your John, in the paper. I was telling my celly that this was my man. He was like, you don't know that boy. And I was like, no, that's my man. And, you know, that really made me feel really, really good. Simply my presence. I'm not talking about the bull crap. I'm talking about coming to my gallery. I ain't talking about the bull crap. I'm talking about coming to my gallery. Now, somebody may never come. They may never come it don't matter they know I do it Mm -hmm. you know they know every day when I'm walking to work I'm not walking to go sell no drug (laughs) I'm not walking to go do no crazy stuff I'm walking to go to the only fine art photography gallery in the city of Philadelphia the only one in the country that I know of that's black owned so I'm the only photographer black photographer in the country that I know of that owns their own gallery space of their own work and for me, that's a very proud thing to share with my, directly with my community. So
2: what has it been like for you with the pandemic and owning this beautiful gallery space?
4: I would say the pandemic helped us immensely in the sense that we were supposed to open in 2019. That's when I got the lease to the space. Then it was a building delay on the build out of the building. And then the pandemic hit. It gave me another year and a half, two years to really hone the skill to really, really, really hone the skill and to save some more money, but to really hone the skill. It took me almost two years to, to feel comfortable enough to say, all right, I'm gonna go spend $30,000 on prints to process an image. Because once you spend the money, it's done, but the image has to be flawless. you know. So it has to be a, a really good representation. It took me a while, you know, through a lot of different tutorials and a lot of different trainers and things like that to be able to feel comfortable and confident and say, all right, bang, I'm gonna I'm do this thing. So I would say like the pandemic was good for us in a sense. It pushed our opening back two years and allowed me a lot of time to get it together the right way.
2: Do you notice a certain season, month or time that you get more purchases or influx in people? What's that like for you?
4: Well, we've only been open for a year, so we still gauge it. But in a year, we've sold 50 pieces. We ran the gallery space, you know, a few times. We've done collaborations with Foot Locker, the Soho House, another publication, Water Ice. We've done a lot of stuff with them. So we really just grinding and building, you know, a year in the business. I'm very satisfied with where we are and our trajectory is to the moon.
2: In this holiday season, it should be amazing as well. We were just talking about before you joined. The price, um,
0: just yeah. I knew you were going to say that. We were talking yeah. about the price point. I was just literally going. to Reasonable. Like, hey, it's so reasonable. Right. Can you talk about the price point? And again, we have to keep saying fine art
4: because fine art is not at this price point usually. So I had to figure out. I got a luxury gallery in the hood. Right. We live in the ninth largest city in the country when it comes to art. And that's calculated by galleries and museums. We have the fourth largest art museum in the country, which is the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Philadelphia is not starred for art at all, but there are no art galleries by and large in the hood. How to make it equitable to the people who surround me so that if they wanted to buy something, they actually could, as opposed to saying, all right, well, get your weight up. Or if you can't afford it, that ain't my fault. So I said that all right. At two fifty, if you can buy a Gucci belt or some Ithaca draws, then you can be an art collector. All of our stuff comes with certificates of authenticity. They limited editions, one of sixty, and they start at two fifty, up to nine thousand. But as things sell, the price increases. So our bestseller, Subway Surfer, that piece at twelve by eighteen is like four fifty or something like that because it's our most popular piece. I needed to figure out the best way to make it equitable to my community so that they could actually support and buy the stuff. Most people are intimidated of galleries. So you say, I'm not going into a gallery unless I can buy something. Museums are different because you know you can't purchase it. You go into a gallery, well, I can't afford this, so why am I going up? Because you like art. Galleries Mm -hmm. are essentially the same as museums. You go in to look. Now, if you got a pushy salesperson, that may not be a comfortable experience. Or if you don't look the part, and somebody don't want you there, you feel that. Ubuntu don't is not that at all. It's the antithesis of that. It's like the most luxurious barbershop you'll ever go to because it is really facilitated around the conversation that's had with the people who come into the gallery. And that ranges from questions about art to politics, Blackness, this thing, this thing, this thing, and the third. So
0: are you opening your doors to other photographers, fine art photographers? Like, how does that work? Or is it just exclusively going to always be Steven?
4: Exclusively always going to be Stephen. We'll do collabs that may stay up a day or two with other artists. But the model of this is uh, I came across the concept of even having my own gallery while I was at a tech conference in Vegas in 2017. And I stumbled across the galleries of Peter Lick. L.I.K. He's an Australian-born photographer. He has about 20 galleries of his own work all around the country.
0: It's just an interesting conversation for a a Black man, since based on those arguments of what fine art is, how hard it was to get into, to be classified, and then being a fine art photographer and being Black and there being a lack of galleries for you to be placed in, it just brings up that question. Because I I mean, Mm -hmm. I understand from a
4: Peter Lick perspective. Mm -hmm. But from my perspective is, Mm -hmm. well, now I'm the model. And all photographers should have their own gallery space. We shouldn't be fighting for space at other places. If it's accepted for another person, but it's not accepted for this person, with the idea that, well, you should make it for everybody. You you know what I'm saying? So, um, grays in there. It's you know, it's it's a lot of grays in there. And I and I've been faced with this question a lot. I think on some level, and this is with any artist, all artists should own their own spaces. I don't I don't care who the artist is, what the artist is, and until we can kind of get there, then collaboration all day long. There are about 10 different black owned art galleries in this city that don't necessarily rock with any black artists. They'll import their stuff. They'll go somewhere else and buy the stuff. They're not allowing space for other artists either. But the idea is, well, it's not my work. So I have this person's work from Africa. This person's work from New York. This person's work from Atlanta. This person's work from here. How is that helping to fill the Philly artists? I want to be a model of empowerment and The start is your first gallery is your house. You print your work, you start there. You'd be surprised how many photographers like that. I never thought about printing my work in my house. Each generation of photographers have different models. And if you're talking to any photographer that's under 30, their model is Instagram. And then like, what are we documenting? If you think about Gordon Parks from the 40s through the 70s, there was a lot of things that were happening within the black community that were primed for photographs to tell the story of Blackness, to lend voice to Blackness. Him being the only Black staff photographer at Life magazine was a major thing while he also documented contemporary Black life during his time. So I just think the times are different. And with times being different, the way it gets to the paper may have changed, but paper is the same. Thanks for listening. And for more Love and
1: Grit, follow us on social at Love Grit Philly. And we'll see you guys and talk to you, Rachel, NYU, soon.
0: Arrivederci. Bye. Bye. Ciao, Bella. <laughs>